We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. I think a modern way of eating it is actually just learning from all the things. And that's not pointing the finger at anyone else. It's also the mistakes kind of I've made around food and the, the judgments I've had about food and the fact that, you know, I splattered avocados all over, you know, <laughs> a lot of my cooking for quite a few years. And really, they're not the most sustainable thing to eat in the UK. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm senior editor Anna Husel, and I'm here with editor-in-chief Matt Rodbard. On today's show, Anna is talking to another Anna, cookbook author Anna Jones. Later on, I'll be chatting with Hannah Chang from New York's Mimi Chang's. But let's talk about Anna Jones. I love Anna Jones's cookbooks. Her latest one, The Modern Cook's Year, has me convinced of two things I never quite thought I'd be on board with. That warm lettuce is a good thing. Uh, that flowers are more than just a decoration. And lots more. And Anna used to work for Jamie Oliver. Is that right? She did, yeah, for years. We talked a little bit about the writing and recipe development she did for Jamie and why she kept her vegetarianism secret from him for so long. Here's Anna talking to Anna Jones. Welcome to the Taste Podcast, Anna Jones. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. You're the author of A Modern Way to Eat, A Modern Way to Cook, and most recently, The Modern Cook's Year. What does the idea of modern cooking or eating mean to you in 2019? There's so many ways you could interpret that. Yeah, I mean, there definitely are a myriad of ways you can interpret that. Um I think I use the word modern in my books because um, when my first book came out in the UK, which was sort of about five or six years ago now, the landscape around kind of veganism, vegetarianism, my books were all vegetarian, around kind of, I guess, eating in a bit more of a conscious way was quite different, I think. And um, I think there were definite connotations around vegetarianism um, that were a bit ungenerous. I think it sort of conjured up images of brightly painted cafes and mm. you know hemp trousers I love a hemp Very trouser I'm 90s. not slating those in any way I love both of those things but <laughs> perhaps and, and perhaps some kind of like ungenerous connotations around food so I wanted to try and express the fact that I was talking about food for me that felt new and fresh um without you know using necessarily the word vegetarian because I know it turns a lot of people off I wanted people to get like three quarters of the way through the book and be like hey oh hold on a second there's no meat there's no fish you know and it'd be kind of an afterthought um you know I, I think a modern way of eating it is actually just learning from all the things and all the you know from our food heritage but also learning from the mistakes we've made around food you know um and that's not pointing the finger at anyone else. It's also the mistakes kind of I've made around food and the, the judgments I've had about food and the fact that, you know, I splattered avocados all over, you know, <laughs> a 
quite a lot of my cooking for quite a few years and really they're not the most sustainable thing to eat in the UK. So it's it's just about kind of like being open, being conscious and taking a view of food that uh, takes a, account of everything we've learned and everything we know now. What are the big differences between the kind of vegetarian cooking you would get from those brightly colored cafes full of hemp pants and <laughs> the kind of modern vegetarian cooking that you really seek out? Like, what is what are the big differences? What's changed? Cooking with vegetables has had, obviously, a massive renaissance. Um, sort of traditional vegetarian food perhaps was a bit stodgier. It was maybe more based around carbohydrates. Um I think some kind of clumsy vegetarian cooking put a lot of cheese at the centre of it, you know, just because um, I think for a lot of chefs sometimes it was like, oh, the vegetarian option was a bit of an afterthought or something that they didn't really feel that passionately about because they weren't buying a, you know, 70 million aged, hour aged steak or whatever it is, you know. Um, So um, I think now cooking with vegetables has become much more nuanced in a good way, both in chefs' kitchens where chefs are using really interesting different techniques and also at home um, where we're, you know, not afraid to, like, roast a whole butternut squash or a whole cauliflower and put it down in the middle of the table and make that the main event. I think there's been a big shift in that. I also think people are much more open to using different spices, using different herbs, and um, definitely in my cooking what I think is really important is kind of layering flavour and texture. So thinking about that kind of like saltiness, the sweetness, the kind of citrus or acidity or vinegar, that kind of, um, you know, the verdant green flavour that comes from herbs and then the kind of umami note that you might get from something like miso or mushrooms or mustard even. And making sure all those things are there, but also at the same time making sure all of those textures are there as well because I think that's one thing that was lost for quite a long time in a lot of vegetarian food was that it was just this one textured thing and you know if you think about cooking a piece of meat you've got lots of different textures going on there and I think that's why it's really important to think about that in vegetarian food be it just you know a sprinkle of breadcrumbs on the top of some pasta or some pumpkin pumpkin seeds or something like that you know sprinkled over a salad Before writing your own cookbooks, you worked for Jamie Oliver for much of your career. What kind of work were you doing and were you mostly also cooking vegetarian food? So I um, worked for Jamie as as like a regular omnivore and also as a vegetarian for a little while. Um, I started off actually cooking on um, one of his cookery courses on um, this cook this program called 15 um 15 was is a restaurant still is a restaurant in east london and he jamie took on 15 apprentices um every year and is still doing that now in a slightly different format but um yeah took on 15 young people to kind of run the kitchen along with obviously some supervising chefs because mm-hmm. <laughs> otherwise the food might not have been that good to begin with um so i started off working there for him and that was at a time when he was not really very well known. He'd written one book um, and he'd just had his first TV show. But as um, 
as his business grew, kind of opportunities grew, and I kind of saw an opportunity to kind of step sideways into the media side of his business. So I did lots of food styling. I did sort of food producing on all his, like, TV shows, including a couple where I came over here and lived in West Virginia for five months and then in L.A. Uh-huh. for a while, um, which was really fun, and also um, helped him with kind of recipe development and writing and that kind of thing because back then it was quite a small tightly knit unit of people there were only like five or six of us working for him it was very much a jack of all trades at the beginning (laughs) but anything he did to do with food which was almost everything I was involved in so it was a brilliant um yeah brilliant time to work for him because I worked for him for seven years when the sort of sort of trajectory of his career was just going kind of like sky high so it was it was brilliant to see and to be a part of was he cool with you going vegetarian? Did that affect your work and your <laughs> um, recipe development? You know what? I think at the time, like 10 or so years ago, it was at a time in London where meat was kind of really king. There was that restaurant called St. John's, which mm-hmm. I don't know if it's Famous super well known here. the but yeah, it's, it's Yeah, like things. pig's trotters, you know, lamb's eyeballs. I'm, probably they don't actually cook eyeballs. I'm doing them a disservice there. It's actually a fantastic restaurant. It's not totally my bag because it's very meaty but they do that nose they started the nose tail movement they do that really well and most of the young chefs I knew including all of my peers were so into that way of eating and so I just went totally the other way and I literally I had to like build myself up to telling people I'd gone vegetarian because it felt like I was like (laughs) uttering this unbelievable swear word and people were like well how are you going to continue with your job and that was a genuine question for me I didn't know if I was going to be able to continue with my job but it felt important to me to do it so I did and for a while I was vegetarian but I had people that I really trusted their taste buds so they would you know, if I made something with meat, I would ask them to taste it in the very, you know, rare instance that they couldn't do that. I would taste a tiny bit of it myself because I felt like I could never serve food to people that I hadn't tasted. But, um, you know, what Jamie was, I don't, I don't think he really noticed for a while because I didn't really tell anyone because I just <laughs> thought people are going to think I can't do my job. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, when he did find out, I don't think it was really particularly a big deal. And he's been incredibly supportive of me and, you know, everything I've done since. So how it much, worked out all right. <laughs> how much does the food styling play into your recipe development? Like in the Modern Cooks year, for instance, so much of the food is very beautiful. How, how does that kind of enter your imagination while you're sort of building a dish? I think it enters into yeah my imagination quite a lot um I think in general I like using like different color and foods anyway and I think um in terms of nutrition that's a great thing anyway if you can vary the colors of the vegetables fruits legumes grains you eat then you're kind of getting a nice wide variety of stuff anyway so I think when you tr- when you lay a flavour, when you lay a texture, naturally that is going to mean you have some interesting different shapes, some interesting different things on the plate. You know, there's always going to be a bit of bright citrus. There's always going to be, you know, a nut or a seed or a, something with a bit of crunch. So I think it just happens quite naturally. And I, I don't kind of reverse engineer it. I don't think like, oh, this is going to look amazing. So I'll write a recipe <laughs> for it. It's very much flavour first. What was the biggest difference between The Modern Cook's Year and your previous two books? Is there kind of like a big thematic difference to this one? 
Definitely. So this book is um, all about sort of cooking through the year. So it's kind of a year in my kitchen. It's it's. Um, I've actually broken the book down in sort of six seasons rather than four. Um, and I did that because I felt like there were a couple of seasons that were just so had such distinctly different times um early summer late summer in this part of the states especially are so different absolutely and and also um you know that that run up to kind of like christmas and for you guys over here thanksgiving um which is technically winter but you're eating in a totally different way than you are in january or february when also there's like more citrus about but you have different mm-hmm. needs and different wants like i'm not a detox in january person mm-hmm. by any stretch of the imagination but there is there is a different energy to how we want to eat around that time and i felt like putting winter all into one big block just didn't seem right equally for that kind of um you know spring like spring early you know late spring early summer it felt like those you know you can you can call spring spring but then you know the things you would get like at this time of year which technically probably is the beginning of spring and the things you might get you know the last couple of weekends of may which also you might call spring are totally different. A greengrocer is a completely different place. And I wanted to kind of reflect those things. Um, So yeah, cooking seasonally has been something that has been like an enduring part of how I cook since I was a young chef. We used to go down to Borough Market every Saturday. And that would be how we kind of like got our ideas for how to cook for the week. week. Um, It's also something that I think grounds me in nature a bit because, you know, like you guys here in New York, I live in a big bustling city in London. I don't actually, apart from, you know, the old park, I don't have that much contact mm-hmm. with nature. So for me, these pillars of the year that kind of punctuate the year for me and kind of connect me with actually what's go- growing, what's going on, have become really important to me. And actually, as I've I had my little boy a few years ago, they've been come in important rituals that I do with him as well that kind of, you know, punctuate the year and the seasons. So um yeah that's the that that's the big difference with this one it's early spring right now what are you most excited to eat and cook with <sighs> well there's there's in the uk at the moment we're in this bit of time that's called the hungry gap it's where <laughs> um that sounds bleak <laughs> yeah it's quite bleak it's where all the stuff you stored all winter is kind of running out and you haven't quite got to like the green shoots peas asparagus just yet even though i think the asparagus is just about coming up in people's gardens um uh so yeah the the really exciting thing right now is wild garlic which I think you guys call ramps I think they're a very very slightly different thing but um that's kind of sprouting up kind of all over the UK and so everyone's really really pumped about that because that really is the first green thing that we get it's before the asparagus and peas everyone's making you know pesto I've been Mm -hmm. throwing it into like frittatas and cooking it into into soups and stuff so yeah yeah it's and, and it's such a like like verdant green flavor it feels it feels like a really welcome thing <laughs> definitely let's talk about edible flowers oh edible flowers there are a lot of them in your new book mm. are they worth it what is the deal with edible flowers i I can't remember there being that many in the book, but I think there must be. They must be um, <laughs> scattered on stuff. So I love flowers, um, and I don't. 
I use them in the summer when they're around. Um, I have a really, really lovely neighbour who has a little window box and she grows loads and loads of things. So she lets me and, and my son sometimes go and pick stuff. Um, and I... Yeah, I love like adding them to salads when I can. I also like when I'm baking a cake or something, if I'm making it for someone's birthday, I will always try and like decorate it with like a flower rather than like loads and loads of sugar shards or something. So like my neighbour grows some marigolds, so like marigold petals. Also in the book, there's lots of stuff with elderflower because elderflower, I know, is not such a common thing here. But in the UK, elderflower literally in sort of mid-May just fills all the parks with this wonderful wonderful heady smell mm-hmm. and, and it um, has a little bit of sweetness to it also yeah it's a really distinct flavor. yeah yeah it has got a distinct um sort of almost like citrusy flavor but almost always it's 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 cooked in something that is quite sugary as well so elderflower cordial you can put it in cakes you can put it in icings you can also um you know batter it and actually serve it as fritters which is a real Italian thing to do covered in oh, covered in icing sugar which is quite amazing so um I think those flowers just naturally are things that I use I wouldn't say that like necessarily I would only really buy a punnet of them if I was like having a bunch of people around and I knew I was going to have like a huge salad and mm-hmm. serve them it's not something that I would buy on a Tuesday for like our Wednesday and Thursday <laughs> night dinner you know right. it's something to just like add some brightness and some fun and you only need a few petals. Yeah, too. exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, little homegrown ones are actually much better because, you know, you know they won't be sprayed with anything. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. One of the things I've learned about a lot from your books is the idea of cooking or wilting the greens for a lettuce a little bit. Yeah. Giving it a little bit of a burnt or grilled or wilted element. Yeah. There's a recipe I love from A Modern Way to Eat where you kind of wilt some kale with roasted cherry tomatoes and coconut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of my what? favorites. It's so good. What are where does where did this come from and why is it a good idea to cook your lettuces? <laughs> yeah, I think kale um definitely for me is something that I don't like enjoy like in its total raw form that much I mean if you scrunch it down with loads of salt and lemon juice or really really finely shred it like I love it in a salad but I much prefer kale like cooked um and actually like popped in the oven it brings out this really really lovely um sort of deep savouriness to it which you don't get you know any other way and quite often when I'm making a salad sometimes I'll you know use a bit of the kale raw and then I'll roast a bit so you're getting a double flavour profile from the same ingredient um I think like griddling or grilling like lettuces like little gem lettuces or cos lettuces um you know is I think charring is something that lots of chefs use in restaurants but I think we're quite scared to use when we cook at home yeah um but it is actually that kind of like missing element because you know people are really happy to grill a steak or you know a burger or a piece of fish but I think people are scared to like put 
vegetables sometimes on their grill, but then they then miss that kind of smoky, deep flavour that it brings. Um, and actually, lettuces, if you cut them in quarters, leave their core on, they're really, really easy to handle on a grill. Mm-hmm. And it just adds that lovely charred smokiness that will bring a completely different dimension to your salad. And, you know, when we move into like spring and summer eating, when, you know, you're eating sort of salads a lot more, it is really nice to have that variety, you know, to be able to have that kind of thing. It's like a half warm, half cold kind of situation. I like it because it kind of breaks a lot of the rules we think of when we think of salads, like raw colds. Yeah. (laughs) And keeping greens really crisp and fresh, too. Yeah. But it's okay. Sometimes it tastes good if they're a little warm and wilty. I think so. And I do it with a lot of, you know, in the winter, I do the same thing with like a like a pointed cabbage or a red cabbage. I'll I'll grill those and, and serve, you know, those in a salad or you know as part of a dish and I think you know vegetables can actually cope with some really really serious heat some really serious charring and I think um you know it's just interesting from a flavor and texture perspective to work that in is what's kind of a wild card pick from the modern cooks year that you really hope people will cook at home and give a try to Hmm. um a wild card pick I think um there's a gratin that I really, really, really love, which is kind of got some flavours that I think maybe stretch people a little bit. And I think that's what I quite like to do in recipes is like give people something that feels quite familiar, but then have one or two ingredients that are unusual or a bit of a stretch. So they kind of are happy with the basic technique, but then it's just adding a couple of different things. Um, So this gratin is potatoes and beetroots, which I guess isn't that strange, but then it has some rhubarb, very finely sliced rhubarb in it, which actually just adds like a really lovely acidity. It's not sweet at all. Um, And if anyone's ever tried like a tiny bit of rhubarb raw, they'll know that it has that citrusy, you know, like acidity like you might have from a lemon. And then there's also some pink peppercorns in there as well, which... um, I mean, it's those kind of level it out. They give kind of like a warm, rounded spice to it. Um, and it turns like the cream and the gratin and this kind of like crazy, crazy lurid pink. So it's actually quite a fun thing to serve as well. So that sounds like the yeah. perfect thing to make this time of the year, too, <laughs> yeah. for a springy brunch. Yeah, exactly. Super, super comforting. Yeah. Anna Jones, thank you so much uh, for being on the Taste Podcast. Thank you. I absolutely loved it. Thanks for having me. Here's Matt talking to Hannah Chang of Mimi Chang's. Hannah Chang, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. So excited. So we've known each other for a while. Definitely for, you've been open for five years now, right? Yep. Coming up on five coming years up in on July. Five. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. That's like five years is like 50 in New York City restaurants, right? I count my blessings every single day, especially when I walk past an empty storefront. I feel bad and I... It's, Throw some praise up. <laughs> no, it's impressive. And honestly, there's so many empty storefronts in the East Village where uh, one of your locations, your first location is. What's up with the East Village? I don't know. I think landlords are just thinking that they can get these absurd rents that up to a certain, certain point that they could. But now a lot of places are realizing those rents aren't sustainable yeah. and have been closing and landlords are just holding out. Have you been able to like figure out your situation with your landlord or is it always like that dance 
Well, our lease is for 10 years, so we don't have to worry about that for about another five. But our landlord is really great, and he's so nice. Amazing. I know. Our first landlord, and you, you hear all these horror stories, and my sister and I just said, we don't know what you guys are talking about. Tom is so nice. And then when we started meeting other landlords, we realized, oh, this is why they have such a reputation. Yeah, they can be ruthless. They yeah. can also live far away and not help you at all, at all you know? Yeah. Uh, let's talk about dumplings, right? Would love to. This is what Our you favorite do. favorite thing. <laughs> it is your favorite thing. It is your life. But you, before you were uh, making dumplings and running um, your restaurant, you had a different career, right? You were – Yes, I did. Like, I worked on the trading floor at J.P. Morgan. Okay, that sounds intense. Was it like Wolf of Wall Street? You know, Wolf of Wall Street was, I feel like, was what the culture was like a long time ago. I think people might see some allure to that still, but it's not like that. Okay. Well, is it half of that, at least? Is it half? half? Well, I haven't seen the movie in a long time, so I don't want to be quoted on that. But things were were definitely much more party-like before 07. Yeah, right. Then they just got became sad and... Sad, depressed, crushed town by the SEC, all those things. Yeah. Uh, what were you eating when you were a trader? Oh. What does a trader's diet in- uh, consist of? Well, I try to be healthy. It, the mornings were not that exciting. We ate breakfast, usually in the cafeteria, which would be oatmeal, toast. On a crazy day, you'd go out and get a bagel. So nothing. <laughs> Wild New yeah. York City morning, <laughs> get that bagel. Well, not that many places are open at 7 a.m. That's when you had to show up to work? We would... Well, when I first started, I would show up at 6.15. And then the more years I accrued, the later I would show up. But the latest people generally show up at 7. And the market opens at 9.30. So what are you doing beforehand? Well, the equity market opens at 9.30. I was in interest rates, which is a global product, so it never closed. So it would go uh, from New York to Tokyo, mm-hmm. Tokyo to London, and it would get passed to New York. Got it. So that's why they had an early call time. Right. I'm I'm asking you all these questions, and yeah. we're going to get to dumplings. I know we tease that out, and now we're like talking about equity market opening times. But I just want to know what did you take away from this mo- these moments on the trading floor that made you realize that you wanted to run a restaurant? Well, actually, I think that working in a fast paced kitchen is very similar to working on a trading floor because it ebbs and flows and when it's flowing everyone game face on and everyone's paying attention you're super dialed in because everything especially on the trading floor everything's so time sensitive and same with fast casual food with a slightly longer time frame right so instead of 30 seconds you have six minutes to get somebody's food out and and with dumplings they kind of do disintegrate if you and they get cold really fast and people are coming here for work lunches so they don't necessarily have an hour to hang out. So we try to be conscientious of that. So take me back to you. Uh, you're on the floor working mm-hmm. and you're clearly not loving it. So what made you make the leap to running uh, a restaurant? Well, it's not that I wasn't not loving it. So I had done it for eight years yeah. and we had opened this restaurant. I was still working in finance full time and I was more just on the investing side and a little more of the you know accounting stuff mm-hmm. in the background for the beginning and then it got some personal things happened in our family and I realized life is so short why I I need to be doing something where I have a little more flexibility with my time and I've always talked about opening a restaurant so it was now or never and when I had first started out in finance I told myself that 
by the age 30, I would be out. That's rad. And my 30th birthday was coming up. So I left two months before. Listeners, check that (laughs) out. That's like cool to like get that that goal in your head when you're in your early 20s. So smart. But in the background, you had your mother's recipes, right? And and like that clearly informed you and your sister, Marion, as well, Mm -hmm. right? Well, it's funny because so she used to make us all these dumplings. And when I was feeling lazy... At work, and I didn't want to go out and eat another gross salad from a deli nearby. Mm-hmm. I would make this is before Sweet Green was open. Yes, before Sweet Green came to New York. Joking. Yeah, <laughs> I know you have a connection. Then we'll get into that. Well, also Sweet Green's amazing, yeah, so no, tasty, she, totally. Um, but I would bring these dumplings into work, and all my colleagues on the trading floor would ask, "Oh, can I have some of your dumplings? Can I have a bite? Can I pay you to bring these in?" And I would say. Uh, hi, I have a day job already. You can have one dumpling and yeah. that's it. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, they were clearly really good because you have a, this, like, secret yeah. kind of method and recipe and ethic. Reveal that a bit. What, what are <laughs> it's these? It's a secret. Yeah, I know. Okay. <laughs> Shout out. You tried to – okay, I tried to trick you there. Well, Why are they so yeah. special? We have a lot of dumplings in our lives, but uh, Mimi Chang's has really risen to one of the top, if not the top, in the city. Yeah. I it's think really that we we just don't take any shortcuts at all. And because everything stems from our mother, who obviously we love so much, and these are her recipes. And I always laugh when I hear a chef saying, oh, yeah, I asked my mother or my grandmother for this recipe. And she'll list nine out of ten of the ingredients, but they won't tell you the last few. Just because <laughs> she wants to have yeah. something to hold over, for you, over you to come back to her. And our mom was exactly like that. And our secret sauce, she wouldn't tell us. It was a running joke for 10 years. And then two weeks before we opened, I said, okay, mom, the joke is no longer funny because we're actually now opening a restaurant. So cough up the recipe. And she did eventually. <laughs> yeah, but with a lot of exasperation because, you know, it was 10 years. It was a secret for 10 years. Yeah. Our dad still doesn't even know the recipe. Only me, Marion, and my mom. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's not written down, I assume. Mm-mm. Hint Not at, done. of course, you won't get into the detail of it, but is it more of a technique or is it like an like a, a straight up ingredient for the dumpling filling? Or is it a way that you manipulate the filling with the dough? I think, honestly, it's starting with the best ingredients because yeah. as long as you're starting with the best ingredients, then you don't really have to cover up anything or try to amp up anything. So I would say it's really more, there's definitely technique involved mm-hmm. um, and also just the recipe. How many dumplings are you doing a week between your two restaurants? I mean, thousands. That's amazing. Thousands, yeah. Is it a good business? It's a great business. It's a really tough business. Sure. Especially with minimum wage increasing, yeah. which I think is a good thing. But New Yorkers aren't just not used to paying more for their food. So Okay, let's do a brainstorm. Yeah. I, I'm really curious. We get a lot of chefs on the podcast, yep. but we talk about the raise in, in, uh, in minimum wage often, especially mm-hmm. for operators of multiple venues in New York. It's challenging. So how do we get diners in New York and in California where they're raising the, the minimum wage as well to value food more? You know, here in America, we spend about 20% of our income on food mm-hmm. in places like Korea and Japan. And uh, other in parts of Europe, it's like in the 40s to 50s to 60s even. So how do we do that? Well, I think that it's much easier when it's a universal thing and that you're, everyone has to increase their minimum wage. It's very tough when, say, minimum wage is at 9 and you are trying to pay your, your team at yeah. $15 because mm-hmm. then your prices are just not competitive. But now, actually, when I look around at other 
dumpling shops or other Chinese restaurants, everyone's prices are much more in line. Even places that are touted for being that are well known for being cheap. Like, oh, actually, it's not that cheap. Five dumplings for a dollar. Well, I'm not comparing it to those places because yeah. those places do not pay minimum wage, and they're definitely not paying on the books. That's true. Because if they did, there's no way their prices would be that amount. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one hard thing, I think, about being in the Chinese and Taiwanese lane of the food is that you're competing with a lot of restaurants that pay under the table. But overall, I think it's I think a minimum universal minimum wage is a good thing. Yeah, I agree yeah. fully. And I just wanted to do a little brainstorm just because people in uh, New York still we talk about the dollar slice versus the four dollar slice. Right. and we're, we're debating it and we're talking about like price points and breaking mm-hmm. points. And it still feels like I love the dollar slice. So it's not really a shot at that, but it's just people just don't want to pay any money for food here. Well, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like New York does have a a food culture, though, right? Mm-hmm. I have a favorite dollar slice, but I typically don't go to the dollar slice. Yeah. You know, I'm going to Prince Street Pizzas, I'm going to Joe's, I'm going to Emily's, or I'm going to Roberta's. And I think that there's a pizza for everybody and for every occasion. Yeah. So at 3 a.m., if you're out and you, you're drunk and you want a dollar slice pizza, great, because yeah. all those other restaurants are not open at that time. Yeah. Whereas if I'm getting delivery pizza, I love getting Emily's and that's awesome. I'm like the and about the 4 p.m. dollar slice. That's like my yeah, house. exactly. It's a snack. It's a total snack. But would you get it, the dollar slice for dinner with friends? I mean, no, right. I, probably <laughs> not. I mean, maybe if it was like before a show or something. But have you thought about other concepts for your own business group? We've definitely thought about other concepts, and it's funny because I had written out a full concept three years ago, and now there are a ton of these concepts around, oh, no. especially in the East Village. Like, what I was just because we so one of our really popular dishes on the menu is our organic chicken bone broth, and we serve it with noodles, or you can get a cup of it. So it made me think about all the amazing soups my mom made growing up. So we thought, why not open just a noodle spot that focuses also on soup? And now there are all these noodle shops opening. So. I know. So we're like, okay, we'll just stay in our lane for now. <laughs> stay in your lane, but also your instincts are are on point. So you're gonna have that next idea, obviously. Right. So let's back up a little bit before you open. You knew us, the Sweet Green guys, because you went to Georgetown, right. and they're from Georgetown, and and had opened on campus. And yeah. you're around the same age ish. They're they were one year older than me. So you're like basically in the same class, right? So talk about that, and I I think that they're they're involved in your restaurant in some ways. Well, so we've been friends since before they opened the restaurant and then I got to see them open the restaurant up front and I remember seeing them go through the process of opening and not sleeping and just all these crazy things that come up that you don't even think about when like oh how do you hang up a menu board oh this menu board doesn't have any and you're like it's custom and all this stuff but they have been amazing at giving us advice, yeah. and actually Nick Jamey was the first person I told this idea about that we were having. And I remember we were at brunch at Estella, and I told him, I have this crazy idea. Hear me out for the whole thing to, and before you say anything. So I tell him, and I'm going like, you know, I'm biting my teeth, my fingernails, being like, uh, is he going to think this is the craziest idea because he knows that I work in finance? And he looks at me and goes, you have to do this. Uh-huh. It's amazing. And that was about two or three years before we actually got the ball rolling. Wow. Yeah, Nick's a cool dude for sure. And that's yeah, that's kind of best. support is, is great. And I think like being in line with Sweetgreen's trajectory is, mm-hmm. is very interesting because I see what you're doing in your two restaurants and mm-hmm. I see scale. 
Let's talk about scale. I mean, is this something you want to ultimately do? For sure. I don't think we'll ever, well, I'll never say, I'm not going to say never, but I don't think we're going to ever scale up the way Sweetgreen has. Of course not. We, that's, that's, that's actually impossible. They're right. unicorns. It's like, <laughs> yeah. not going to happen. Right. It's crazy. They've doubled in size in a year and without losing quality at all. But I think that our we definitely see a few more locations coming up, oh, cool. hopefully. So we'll see. That's great. I mean, that must be stressful, though, because you're thinking about all the work that goes into two, and then you're like, okay, doubling that. But I also think it's exciting because I love to give our team growth opportunities, and it's hard to give you can only have you're not no you're gonna have twenty managers for two locations, right? But if you keep growing, then you can keep yeah moving moving people up, and they see mobility, and I think that's really exciting. Tell me a little bit about like in New York, you're you're on, you're out and about, you're part of the community of chefs. Like, you know, what are you what are you liking these days in terms of restaurants? Oh my gosh, there's so many good restaurants. Well, I always love Lilia, and Missy is really delicious. Have you been yet? I haven't been to Missy. I've been to Lilia. Yeah, you got to check it out. Yeah, it's definitely so will do that. And I also love Cafe Ultra Paradiso, mm-hmm. and I've not recently, but I've kind of become a new. Um, follower of Flora Bar, it's so good. It's just that it's so far from. It's where a I live. little inconvenient for anyone. Yeah, no one's above like fifty ninth no, Street. No, but ever. it's perfect when you're meeting friends from outside the city. You're like, let's meet halfway. Yeah, the brunch is so good. Oh yeah, yeah, the food is just so good. I love, I love that kind of cooking because it looks when you're looking at it, it doesn't it looks kind of plain, yeah. and then the flavors are just. Out of this world. Yeah, the plating. It's really neat. And then also the pizza at Una Pizza Napolitana is really good too. Yeah. I think you're hitting um, a lot of – and I'm noticing there's a lot of uh, friends in those in those restaurants who yeah. are similar age, similar inspiration, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's such a great, a great community. Totally. Tell me about your pop-ups. I think that's been something that's been important to you since you probably opened. I mean, I'm, I've been to a couple of them, and I know friends in the industry have done them. How do they work, and what's 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 the deal with those? What do you mean? Um, your guest chefs. Oh, sorry, yeah, I the call class. them pop. I they think they feel like pop-ups because, but they're like guest chefs. Yeah, right? like yeah. collaborations. Collaborations. Sorry, yeah, that's. So it came about really organically. It just most of the time we collaborate with people that are friends of ours yeah. or in our community. Mostly people that I mean, all these people really inspire us, and it's amazing to be able to work with the people that are in your way, role models and idols, and that's how they came up. So who are who who have you had? Aunt? We've had Missy Robbins. We've had Daniel Hum from Eleven Madison Park. We've had Dan Barber. Decent names. A dream. De- decent a dream. names. Yeah. Like, okay, <laughs> talent there. Like we're pinching ourselves because you're mm-hmm. basically. You look at these chefs and the lineup is like the equivalent of seeing the people from the Grammys or the Oscars yeah. that we're collaborating with. I mean, um, and and what are they actually? Is it like a couple dumplings that they're doing on the menu? Is that how it works? So we usually do it as a monthly special. Cool. And for example, with Dan Barber, the proceeds went to City Harvest. Oh, good. Yeah. So I want to know like about these collaborations. I mean, I'm thinking this could be a cool thing for a, for a cookbook maybe? I feel like, I don't know, like, let's get into the cookbook world. I want to know, have you thought about it? We asked all of our guests on Taste Podcast, if you had a dream cookbook project, what would it be? Actually, our dream cookbook project would be with our mother. Oh, cool. But she's pretty hard to pin down in terms of (laughs) recipes. (laughs) I would love, and actually just for selfish reasons, I would love to have all of my favorite recipes that she cooks in a book that I could hold on to forever and for, press, you know. Prestige. Yeah. Yeah. Prestige. 
Pros- Pros- posterity. Posterity. I was thinking prosperity because Chinese New Year was last yeah. year, and I was like, that's not the word. Posterity, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so what would be some of the dishes? Let's go through some of your mom's classics. So definitely there's a bunch of breakfast dishes, yeah. like sticky rice rolls from that are very Taiwanese that yeah. have sticky rice, and they have a fried dough in them, egg, pork floss or fish floss, spicy radish pickles. It sounds really weird, and I think it might be an acquired taste, but it's one of my favorite things in the world. Oh, man. We had a big pork floss story on taste. It was amazing. I saw. Great I loved response. it. It made me so happy. Oh, yeah. it was a really cool. <laughs> I love pork floss. And then she also makes this amazing tomato and egg noodle soup, which also I don't know if would be wildly popular, but it's really good. And she makes it with bone broth as a base. So how are the tomatoes manipulated? Is it canned tomatoes or fresh tomatoes? Fresh tomatoes. It's got to be fresh tomatoes, yeah. of course. So what, what's, that, what's in it? So what, you, you know what's funny? Now that you're asking me about canned tomatoes, my mom rarely ever cooked with canned vegetables. Maybe like water chestnuts and baby bamboo shoots. That was it. Yeah. Market-driven yeah. cooking. Right. Yeah. Um, but in the noodles, it had stir-fried ground pork. And then with egg and scallions and tomato, fresh tomatoes, and then you scramble it all up and then put it with broth. Bone broth, yeah. Bone broth. And you serve it with these thin rice noodles. And then she would put shade, not shaved, like finely sliced iceberg lettuce on top for some crunch. Yeah, for some crunch. Yeah. So what's the base, uh, like what's in the bone broth? What are the aromatics? Like what's, what's, the, what's the spice really? So I don't think she did. This bone broth didn't really have spice. No. It would just be bones and sometimes, um, I think it was uh, basically a daikon yeah. radish yes. or like a white turnip, something yeah. like it's that. Yeah, re- it's a daikon, so it's very vegetal. Yeah. Is there a little bit of ginger in the broth? Sometimes, yeah. yeah. Depending on what kind of broth she was making. I love- But not, this, not for these noodles. Not for these noodles. Yeah. This is a, a daikon tomato uh, right. broth uh, base. God, that makes you, re- I really would like that right now. Yeah, me too. God, let's do that. (laughs) Hannah Chang, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. All right. Thank you so much. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis. Studio recordings by Pat Stango. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.